you for joining the Element Church Podcast, where we exist to guide people to experience life to its fullest, connect into meaningful relationships, and make a lasting impact. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope this message inspires and strengthens your faith. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? You guys look great, look nice, look amazing. Just the usual you're saying. Would you join me with prayer as we uh, start off our teaching time this morning? And so, Lord Jesus, we put ourselves in your hands. We say to you, you are good, and we want to be like you. As we look into your word today, would you shape us? Would you form us? Would you change us? Would you meet us here? Would you be present amongst us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, my name is Buzz, and I'm the lead pastor here. I've had the privilege of serving there for... I can't even remember how long it's been so long, like two months. So it's been, it's been amazing. And one thing I often say to people, like, why, why did you feel like Element Church was a church that you wanted to be a part of? And I think one of, there's a lot of answers to this question, but one of the ones that's always top of my list is the impact that we make in our community. You know, as we turn the page towards 15 years of existing as a church, we're a church that had a vision to make a lasting impact. And it's so fun to see that we are doing that. You know, I was so challenged by what Aaron was sharing on the screen about our church in Columbia, that we as the body of Christ here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, can be an impact force all around the world, where people are coming to know the Lord, people are getting fed, people are getting saved, people are getting prayed for, people are getting educated because of just what we do as the body of Christ here. No matter where you go in the world, you're going to meet a brother or sister in our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's awesome. It's amazing. And so I was kind of thinking this morning, you know, why do we believe in making an impact? What is this all about? Why do we think that this is an important thing to do? Well, I think the scripture teaches us that we love because God first loved us, right? So when we talk about making an impact, what we're really saying is that we want to take this love that God has for us and just pour it out onto others. Maybe that's so that they'll come to know God for the first time, or maybe that's just so that they'll experience some tangible love here in this world, whether it's a warm coat or a meal or something like that. And I'm, I'm so happy that Element Church, for 15 years and hopefully for 15 and 1,500 more, will continue to be a church that impacts those around us. So thank you, Element Church, for your generosity and for leading the way in making an impact. If you would, just raise your hand if you think, man, Element Church has made an impact in my life in some way. Praise God, man. This is a great place to be. I'm proud to be a part of that. You know, the central truth at the heart of this sermon series that we're in, this copycat series, is just that, that we love because God first loved us, and that if we want to be followers of Jesus, we should do like he did, like he taught, like he showed us how to do. And uh, you're going to hear me say this like a lot of times, right? If you want to have the same intimacy with the Father that Jesus had, you're going to have to learn to pray like Jesus did. And so that's why over these next five weeks, we are just continuing to dig into the prayer life of Jesus to see how he taught us to pray. So last week we talked about prayer and fasting. You don't have to raise your hand. Did anybody try fasting? It's hard. Was it just hard for you or was it hard for me? It feels like fasting will sneak up on you on the hardest possible days. And I began to wonder, does fasting create those hard days because you're hungry and hangry? Or does God give you fasting as a gift on those hard days so that you might be strong to face them? And I want to encourage you, if you haven't jumped into fasting or prayer or just taking whatever the next step is for pressing into Jesus Christ, this is a good day to do it. You know, if you're Jesus, I wonder, like, what was his tough day? I think about, man, my tough days, but Jesus had some tough days too. And probably one of his toughest, if we're being honest, was right at the end of his ministry. So like if last week we looked at how he started fasting and prayer and temptation, I want to fast forward this week to almost how he ended his ministry with his disciples. 
We're going to spend a lot of time in John chapter 17 today to see what did Jesus choose to do to prepare for the toughest time in his life? Well, he spent it in prayer. We have this prayer recorded for us in John 17. It's often called the high priestly prayer because Jesus is like our priest going between God and us and interceding for us on his behalf. And so I want to look at this section today and see how our prayer life can copy that of Jesus as we prepare uh, for what he has for us in this life. So let me ask you this. What would you pray for at the end of your life or at the end of your ministry? What do you think would be the most important as you looked back at a life well lived and said, man, this is the things I want to commit into God's hands? You know, some of us would pray for our own healing. Some of us would pray to have family and friends and loved ones around. Some of us would pray for forgiveness for our regrets. Because there's something about being at the end of your life, looking back, that crystallizes what your life really was all about. It brings it kind of into this sharp focus, kind of the, just the center of what your life was all about. This is why I think we pay attention to last words of people, you know. Uh, They're kind of summing up their whole life in a couple of sentences, Right, so like if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. Famous last words, right? We know the Terminator or whatever. I wasn't allowed to watch that movie. It was rated R. So forgive me. <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. Uh, but I want to play a game. I'm not actually sorry about playing this game. This is going to be amazing. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put up some famous last words on the screen, and then you can guess who you think said it. If you get it right, you can have 100 billion points. Okay, you ready? <laughs> This is, oh, wow, you've never scored that many points before. Okay, so this is kind of summing up people's lives, what they're all about. So let's look at this first one. Who do you think said something like, tomorrow at sunrise, I will no longer be here? For 100 billion points, tomorrow at sunrise. Why would you say Jesus, right? Because he can see the future. Good guess, but actually it's this guy, Nostradamus. You ever seen Nostradamus? I read his stuff all the time in the checkout line at the supermarket on the National Enquirer. You guys do this like me? He's like able to see the future, you know, medieval guy. So tomorrow at sunrise, he predicted his death. What about this next one? Money can't buy life. Kind of sounds like Beatles-y, Paul McCartney-y. Does anybody know for, I'll give you 200 million trillion billion points if you get this one right. You can't get it. It's Bob Marley, right? He says money can't buy life. I wonder what he thought money could buy. Interesting. Let's skip the next one. We'll go on to number four. This last word of this person was the first time I probably ever agreed with them in my entire life. They said it this way, go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. Kind of like this, because he's, he's encouraging us to seize our life, to not wait till the end to say what you have to say, but live it each and every day. Don't put it off until the end of his life. And so I agreed with this person, like I said, probably for the first time. Have you ever agreed with Karl Marx before? Don't raise your hand. I don't know. It's... We'll see. Okay. I'm going to award myself 100 billion points. You guys better luck next time. But who cares about Karl Marx and Bob Marley and all these people? I want to know what did Jesus pray at the end of his life? How did he sum up and look back at his life well lived? How did he say, man, I'm stepping out of this life into the life to come. What's important to leave behind? And so we're going to look at John chapter 17 and see what he has to say. We'll start and we'll just by reading verses 1 through 3. We'll put them on the screen for you here. Jesus says it this way. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. 
All right, we're going to read kind of all the way through John 17. But in these first three verses, I think one way to put it is that Jesus prayed for truth. Jesus prayed for truth. And here, of course, I'm kind of pulling on Jesus' great revelation earlier in the Gospel of John, where he tells us that he is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Right? This is the truth that Jesus is praying for, the truth that relationship with God is the way that you can be given eternal life. And the way to know that eternal life, of course, is to know God through knowing Jesus Christ, who was himself God in human form here on this earth. This isn't the first time we see this in the Gospel of John. In fact, in John chapter 3, 16, it's probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible. When you go watch football this afternoon, they're hanging it behind the goalposts. You slide down to Denver to go to In-N-Out Burger, they put it on your burger wrapper. John three sixteen. it's the center of the Gospel. It says it this way. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So this is that central truth that Jesus is praying for, right? Everyone who knows him will have eternal life. He prays that each person would know the true God in the person of Jesus Christ, who was God himself, sent by God himself. I mean, this is right at the center of our faith, isn't it? This revelation that humanity is broken, damaged by sin. We're not able to repair ourselves. Therefore, we are separated from God. But Jesus came to earth to bridge that gap between God and people. He lived a a perfect human life. He paid the penalty that was due us for sin in order that we might not be saved just from the punishment due sin, but also that we might be saved into a good and beautiful and different kind of life that we call eternal life. This is what Jesus is praying here in John 17, 1 through 3, that we can have this life and see the truth of it. This is the very point of John's gospel, that to know the truth, it means that you have a relationship with Jesus. To be saved means that you have a relationship with Jesus. To have eternal life, it means that you have a relationship with Jesus. All these kind of Christian words point at the same thing, that we have a relationship with Jesus. The book of Proverbs, uh, in chapter 9, verse 10, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. One of my favorite verses in the Bible Because in other words, to know the truth means that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Simple concept and I think good news. But I also think it's something the church often gets kind of wrong. I think it's kind of like one of my favorite childhood memories, which was watching Jeopardy with my grandma, right? So she's the reason that we have this quiz show here this morning. You're welcome, right? You see both... She and my grandpa, they were college professors. Grandma taught English and then went on to be a librarian. And she loved, like, facts and knowledge and stuff like that. So we loved, like, Carmen Sandiego. You guys remember Carmen Sandiego? Where in the world is she? Unbelievable. We found her every time. We loved to play Trivial Pursuit, fill out that little pizza pie kind of a thing. And we loved to watch Jeopardy. And you thought, Buzz, you are from a family of nerds. You be the judge, right? Just like Alex Trebek was the judge on Jeopardy, I feel like he's my best friend because it felt like I could kind of get closer to my grandma the better I was at Jeopardy. We'd answer questions together and it felt like knowing these facts was a good way to spend time with her. I miss her. She went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, right? But we wanted to be close to grandma and so this would cause some of us, and by us I mean of course not me, but my siblings, right, to fake the answer to these questions. You ever know these people like the contestant would read out the answer and then they'd be like, oh yeah, I knew that. It's like, no, you didn't. You only learned it just now when they said it out loud. I was like, Reed, you're like six years old, but you knew who the first prime minister in England was? Like, you did not. You knew what the fourth longest river in India was? I don't think so. You knew the best-selling book after the Bible? Like, you really knew this stuff? Like, they didn't, but they wanted to fake it so that they could feel like they were part of the 
family, part of the club, part of the team, part of what was going on all around, you know? And so they would fake these answers really relationally. They wanted to feel just close to everybody. So they faked like knowledge and knowing stuff. Do you ever feel the same way about your relationship with God? Do you ever feel like church is kind of about like learning stuff or knowing facts? Do you ever feel like reading the Bible is more like studying for a test? Perhaps worse, do you feel like you have to fake that knowledge because you want to be a part of the club and close to those around you? Is Christianity like a kid answering Jeopardy questions with his grandma? Is this what Jesus is praying for when he prays that we know Jesus? Is he praying for an accumulation of facts into our mind? Do you know someone who has felt this way before? Have you felt this way before? Is this the kind of knowing God that we're all excited about here at Element Church? Or is it possible that God means something a bit different? Not to know him factually speaking, but to know him and have a relationship with him as one knows and has a relationship with a friend. Is God more interested in your intellectual knowing or knowing him like you know your family and that you spend time with and love and have that relationship with? You know, for a lot of years, I treated God as if I was preparing for some final Jeopardy exam that was going to come in heaven, right, to determine whether or not I got in. I felt like following God was primarily accumulating these lists of facts, learning what was right and wrong, and like kind of understanding the metaphysical properties of the universe. It's very intellectually driven, right? Like I could just understand it correctly, I would do well. I felt like Jesus was kind of somebody more like, like a George Washington or like a Joan of Arc or like a Milton Keynes or somebody from history, somebody like that, that maybe their ideas and their example were great for us to follow. And if we followed their teachings, things would go well. But you can't really have a relationship with them. Like, how can you know George Washington? He's not alive anymore. That's what Christianity felt like to me, learning facts and like understanding history. But Jesus is different than that. You know, Jesus isn't like these people. He's not somebody just whose teachings and whose example carries forward. He's somebody that we can have a relationship with because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. We don't need to impress him or impress others with how much we know about him. He's asking us just to spend time with him each and every day. I don't really think I understood this until college, really. You know, I went to a Christian college, and it was more driven by worship and prayer than it was by facts and knowledge. And then it had an impact on me. When my classmates worshiped the Lord in our chapel times together, they really believed that the living God was receiving their praise and that he was with them face to face. I had never experienced that before. When my classmates prayed, they really believed that Jesus was listening, that he wanted to hear them. And perhaps most shocking to me, they like, expected an answer to those prayers. Their prayer life, their worship life was most driven by this expectation of relationship with a living faith in a Jesus who was alive. It helped pull me out of this dry, kind of fact-based, head-only understanding of approaching God and try to follow him with my whole life instead. So maybe you're like me and you feel like Jesus is actually more about facts, about rules, about impressing the club that God has put you around with how much you know. This prayer of Jesus in John 17, it's for you, that you might know Jesus. You might have a relationship with him, know him in that way. That you might have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for you. I mean, I think it's amazing that it's not up to us to get it right, that Jesus both makes the way and fulfills the way. You know, he didn't just pray for truth that we might have an initial moment of knowing him, but he prayed for us to continue and to persevere in this world. You know, Jesus prayed for us. Did you know that? At the end of his life, Jesus prayed for us to continue in relationship with him. 
Here's how he put it in verses 9 uh, through the first half of 11, of 11. He says it this way. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so that they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They're staying in this world, but I am coming to you. All right, let's pause there. Now, here if we want to take like a very like facts and figures approach to the scripture, a very like narrow reading, you might read those first two verses where Jesus says something like, my prayer is not for the world. And then you might conclude something, I think, wrong. Something like, Jesus doesn't love the world. Look, John 17 says he doesn't pray for the world. Something like that. But I think that's being too rigid, too narrow. Because think of it this way. Like, do you pray before a meal? Do you pray before you have food? Do you ask God to bless your food? What if I came up to you and were like, hey, I heard you just prayed for your food. Why didn't you pray for the church, man? Why didn't you pray for your family? Why didn't you pray for your kids? Why didn't you pray for the stuff you're facing? And you'd be like, hey, man, I'm just trying to have my burger over here. I'm praying for my food. It feels like right before the meal is the right time to have this kind of a prayer. In other words, you can have all this type of things in your prayer life. So just because Jesus didn't choose to pray for the world here in the high priestly prayer, it doesn't mean that he is abandoning the world and doesn't love them. We just read in John 3.16, he loves the world. He died for the world. But there is something special, I think, about Jesus at the end of his life choosing to say, all right, I have one thing to pray for. It's the most important for me right now. And he chose to spend that time on us, on his followers on his disciples. I think that's amazing. I think one of the reasons we're on his heart in this way is that he's just about to go back to the Father, right? He's going to be ascending into heaven. He won't be physically with people any longer to oversee us. You know, I was thinking about this concept just this weekend. I I had made a connection on Facebook Marketplace, which don't go on Facebook, right? You can find God on Facebook if you look like super hard. Okay, so I found like a crumb of God's goodness because I connected with somebody who needed my moving boxes. Like we just moved and so I had these boxes. They came to pick them up. It's like a young couple and uh, expecting their first child and moving out of state. And I was just thinking like, what would it have been like to have been their family, right? Who are here still in Wyoming, but sending them out out of state, no longer there to like be with them and have meals for them and, and, and care for them and look after them. I think that's how my mom felt when I moved out to go to college. Like, will he be okay? I think that's even how Tara's mom felt when we moved here from California. I don't think it matters if you're in your teens, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, wherever old you are, it's hard to say goodbye and send somebody out if you're not there with them. There's that gap of relationship, isn't there? And yet Jesus stands here at the end of his life and ministry, ready to launch his followers out on their own. And so what does he do? He does what we should do. He prays for them. He prays for them. He lifts us up in prayer and asks God for his blessing. So I was challenged by that. Like, are we praying for those that we've launched? Are we lifting up our family who's no longer here? Those people in our church who have moved out of state or out of city? Are we caring for our ministry connections? All these people that have been collected into our life? Or are we just focused on what we need right here and right now? You know, Jesus prayed for us that as we were sent out, God would continue to be with us. And I love that through the ministry of prayer, we can lift up those also in our family our spiritual family, that God can be right with them. We can be a connected family of God through the power of prayer. I think that's pretty amazing. You know, yet at the same time, Jesus didn't leave his followers all the way alone. John's gospel elsewhere tells us that he sent the Holy Spirit to us like a comforter, like a guide, like somebody who is always with us. So the Holy Spirit is with us and God therefore is still with us, just not in the physical form of Jesus. 
often we say that God is three in one, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God, all together, all aligned in will and purpose and togetherness, not arguing about what's the best way to do, but just caring for us, bringing us into a full knowledge of who God is, right? And that's why I think one reason that Jesus lifts up that same unity as a focus of his prayers, because God in his wisdom is unified with himself, and I think he wants that same unity for us. So Jesus prays for this unity here in the high priestly prayer. Look how he puts it in the second half of verse 11. He says it this way, Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. And this is just half a verse, but it's really filled with a couple things I want to unpack. All right, first off is that concept of name. So Jesus says, Holy Father, you've given me your name. What does that mean? What is Jesus getting at here? Is this like the name of Jesus? Is this like a, like a, like a password that you have to pray to get God to unlock your prayer? Or like, like a magician might say, abracadabra? You know, is this what we say when we pray in the name of Jesus? I don't think so. I think it's a little bit different, right? Because in Jesus' day and even today, we, we connect the, the idea of a name really with the idea of authority. Right? You might think of like a medieval guy running up to a castle and he says like, open up in the name of the king. What he's really saying is, Because the king has authority and he's given me this authority, now you have to open the the gate, right? Open up in the name of the king means participate in the king's authority in this matter. He compels you to do so, right? And so that's what Jesus is getting at here when he is saying that he has the name of the father. He's saying the authority, the power, the wisdom, the will, the direction, all that Jesus does is under the authority of God. And so Jesus asks that we are protected by that same name of the father, authority, power, wisdom. He's not like invoking a magic spell. He's saying that God will protect us wherever we go. Man, and for those of us that have launched kids like into college or out of state or uh, family has moved away, we, we, we sense intrinsically this need for protection, don't we? Like we worry all the time that there's like some force from the outside that might come in and steal and kill and deceive and harm and so on. They need protection. But here in verse 11, Jesus doesn't ask for protection from outside forces, does he? What does he ask that we be protected into? Did you notice? He says that, we might, that they might be as united as we are. He prays that we, his followers, will be as united as Jesus was with the Father. And I just told you, Jesus and the Father, it's the same. And so they can't really even exist without each other. How can we be praying, or how can we be prayed into that sort of miraculous unity. And I do think it will take a miracle, don't you? (laughs) You know, you might think Jesus would ask for blessing or breakthrough or provision or wisdom for decision or these kinds of things that we are important, but let's check Jesus' work. (laughs) Has unity in the church been something that needs a miracle to achieve? (laughs) Man, we don't even have to go back like thousands of years and be a medieval church historian. Like, let's go back like five years. Let's go back like two years. Let's go back to like March of 2020, did the church of Jesus Christ need a miracle to be aligned in purpose? Just one example, we did. It's a miracle that we can be united as believers one with another. So I wonder sometimes, like, if this unity of purpose was going to require a miracle, why didn't God just say, like, you know what, you're right. Just worry about your own individual connection with me. Don't worry about self-sacrificing love or being a transformed community or caring for one another. Just worry about a relationship with me. Some people would say, don't worry about the horizontal relationships. Worry about the vertical one, right? Just you and Jesus, just the two of you, just together. 
Why can't we just have this private relationship with God? Well, I guess I don't know why God set it up this way, but I am persuaded that he has done so. He has set it up so that relationship with Jesus is not something that's private, just you and him, that he'll sort out kind of on the last day. I think relationship with Jesus is an entrance into his kingdom and into his family and into his people. To act with his name, his authority, but also his purpose, his love, and his grace. You know, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who was the spiritual leader in South Africa during apartheid, put it this way. He said, we cannot be reconciled to Christ if we are not reconciled to one another. The New Testament echoes this in large part. There's 59 Five, nine statements in the New Testament about the one another's of our faith. Things like love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, consider one another better than yourselves. One another 59 times. We can't ignore it. It's so central to the teachings of Jesus and the truth in the Bible. Relationship with Jesus and the prayer of Jesus, the prayer life of Jesus is not a private thing about us and our needs and our own private relationship with him. It's about all of us. Now, you might be saying something like, I don't know, it is possible, though, to have a relationship just with God and not anybody else, isn't it? And it is, right? You might think something like, what if you crashed on a desert island and were there by yourself? What about that, you know? Or what about somebody who doesn't have a good church in their town, who has nobody to fellowship with? What about somebody who was just the first person in their city or in their nation to become a believer? What about them? Can't they do it on their own, kind of? What about somebody who's been hurt by the church, who needs some time away for healing and some space? And I want to say, yes, you can have a relationship with God. It, it is a possibility. But for every one instance of this, I think there's probably nine or ten of us who would say something like, it's actually just too hard to have a relationship with people. I'm going to step out of it and focus just on Jesus. We wimp out in other words, I think. So yeah, it's possible, but Jesus has set it up to be a transformed community. It'll take a miracle. This is why Jesus, I think, prays to empower us and to help us. And I think the fourth thing we see, to protect us. Jesus prays for our protection. He says it this way in verse 15 and following. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And one thing I love about the Gospel of John, just generally, and Jesus' prayer here in specific, is that it has a lot of echoes of the same themes, like a richness. It's almost like a tapestry that has a beautiful regularity to it, but sometimes a little bit of a different note. So here we see an example of it. We're talking about, again, this theme of truth and also this theme of protection, but with a little bit of a twist, right? So earlier we saw that truth basically meant that you were in a relationship with Jesus and Jesus prayed for protection, but really as a protection of unity. So here we see that same rhythm because here he's asking for truth again. Same type of thing, right? An identification as Jesus as Lord, a relationship with him, an allegiance to him and to his teachings. And here a contrast with the evil one. So Jesus is basically praying that we would be more identified by our relationship with him than we are by our relationship with the world. So, but here's where the Bible's tricky. This is a bit of a different thing because the world can mean some different things throughout John's gospel. We saw in John 3.16, for example, that God loved the world and gave himself for the world. And this, I think he means the people in the world. God loves everybody. And yet here in John chapter 17, verses 15 and following, we see that the world means something a bit different. Here he means uh, things we shouldn't be associated with. 
Things like thinking like the evil one does in allegiance to his purposes or acting like basically Satan wants you to act. So how can God say in John 3 that he loves the world and yet here in John 17, don't be like the world? It feels kind of like they're different things, right? Well, in John 3, he means the people and in John 17, he means kind of the actions or the evil forces, right? So Jesus prays not that we be taken out of the world because he doesn't want us as his followers to be isolated from those people he loved and died for and created. But Jesus also knows that this world, this physical realm, it isn't our true home. We're created for face-to-face relationship with God. One day he'll come back and set everything right. But in the meantime, the book of Peter tells us that we are like aliens, strangers, wanderers, and sojourners. We feel like we don't quite belong in this space, right? In fact, Jesus will say to Pontius Pilate a couple chapters later, his kingdom is not of this world. It's beyond this world. It transcends this world. It's better than this world. It's a type of thing our world longs to become someday, but we're here still in this world. And honestly, we feel stretched and almost cut into two. You ever feel this way? That you're like here in the physical world, and yet you kind of long for our heavenly home where your citizenship really is? You feel like you're here with the people that you love and a purpose that matters, but you're out of step with the world and things that are happening here. And so we're split into two, it feels. And we have a choice how to resolve this split. One way that we can resolve this split is we can just become more at home in the world. We can make our identification here more and more often. We can feel more at home with the purposes of the evil one and be home in this physical realm. Or we can do the other thing and identify with Jesus more and more in what he prays. We can make our true home more and more in heaven. Because we're here in the world and we're heading to heaven Which do you get to pick? Jesus says in John 17, pray that you might find a true home with me. Be connected into true relationship with me. And so as we copycat these prayers of Jesus to have intimacy with him like Jesus did, it's a great comfort to me to know that Jesus is praying for us to succeed in that. We need his miracle help, don't we? Why doesn't Jesus just help us by pulling us completely out of the world? Why are we stuck here with one foot here and one foot in heaven? I mean, I think in part, primarily, it's because we have a mission to accomplish. And that's why I think next we see that Jesus prays for this mission. He prays for our mission. Let's look at verse 18. He says it this way. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. So here we are sent, it seems, in Jesus' name, that we might share with our world the good news that you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is the mission, to live out the truth that Jesus is alive, that he has transformed how we can live both with God and one another, and that he is coming again soon. Jesus says here in John 17 that he gave himself as a sacrifice to make this thing happen. Jesus is involved at every level. He's the one who sent the sacrifice. He's the one who is the sacrifice. He's the one who receives the sacrifice. Jesus is all in all. For their sake, Jesus gave everything. And not for just the disciples in his day, but for us. Jesus gave everything for this mission. Amazing. You know, as we think about this as the last prayer of Jesus and the importance of these as his last words, we can see a few things. And firstly, that it's finished. Jesus accomplished this mission on the cross. We're not waiting for anything else to be done. But second, we kind of are waiting for stuff to be done, right? We have a long way to go. We're still here. We're still following him. So does it mean because this is Jesus' last words that he's done praying for us? Man, far from it. Far from it. I love how the book of Hebrews puts it in chapter 7. 
Starting in verse 22, it says this, Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees a better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and for all to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. See that he lives forever to intercede with God, to pray for us to God on their behalf. And Jesus is still interceding for you. He is still standing in the gap for you. He is still praying for you. He is still working for you. He is still with you. He has not forgotten you. He has not left you behind. He doesn't give you some last words and let you twist in the wind on your own. No, he's still with us now. And Matthew tells us even to the very end of the age. He is always praying for us. He is our high priest forever. And this is the last thing I see in the passage, and it's what I'd like to encourage us as Element Church to make a specific part of our prayer life in the coming week because, once again, I see that Jesus prays for us. For us. You know, sometimes it's hard to see yourself in the pages of the Scripture because it's written, you know, thousands of years ago, people who lived long ago, and that's not really us. You know, yeah, there's truth that follows us, but sometimes it's hard to see ourselves there. And that's why I really love John 17, verse 20 and following, because we are squarely right there in the crosshairs of these pages in a way that's more obvious than it is in some other places. Look at this. How does Jesus pray for us? He says it this way. I am praying not only for these disciples, meaning the ones who are just with him right at that time, but I'm also praying for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. That's us. What does he pray? Verse 21, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I in you, and that they may be in us so that the world will believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one, just as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them just as much as you love me. Man, unbelievable. Jesus is praying this for you and for me. If you have believed in the truth of Jesus Christ because of John's testimony, because of what John, Jesus' best friend, wrote down in his book of what he saw and heard Jesus live and teach, like we all have, Jesus is praying for you. If you came to know Jesus for the first time as a result of the testimony of somebody who loved him, like your grandmother or your mother or your friend, Jesus is praying for you right here. Nowhere do we more clearly see the antidote to the Jeopardy fact history book faith that sometimes we get trapped into. Nowhere do we see more clearly that a relationship with Jesus isn't just for those superstars you read about in the Bible. It's for us. He's praying for us. Jesus is praying specifically for you. Man, what an encouragement. He's praying for us that you might be as close to the Father as Jesus was. He's praying for our church that we might be as unified of mind and of purpose and of vision as Jesus and the Father are. He's praying that we might not even exist apart from each other, that we can love each other so much, just as he died for us. This is Jesus praying for us to have a relationship with God. He is still praying for forever. So what do we do with all this, church? 
what do we do with the prayer life of Jesus as we copycat this prayer of Jesus? After all, we're not dying for the sins of humanity. We're not the high priests like Jesus is, but yet we want to learn from his prayer life and copycat his rhythms. You know, we've kind of seen Jesus pray for six categories, some variations on a theme, right? He's praying for truth, that people might know that knowing Jesus is the way to God. He's praying for us. He's praying for unity in the church. He's praying for our protection from the evil one. He's praying for the mission in the world that he sent us into. And then he's praying for us specifically. And so I want to suggest that if we want to have the intimacy with the Father that Jesus had, we need to have the prayer life like he did. And therefore, I think we need to have a rhythm around these six kinds of things as we pray for one another and we pray for the church. What if we actually did that? What if we shaped a prayer around this? What if you prayed John 17 every day? What if you memorized it and made it a part of your daily rhythm? Do you think that you'd see these things come to pass, like a truth in relationship with God? Do you think that would break forth? Do you think that the disciples of Jesus Christ would be encouraged because of your prayers? Do you think that the church would be more unified if we all were praying this together? Do you think that you would find protection from the world as you prayed this prayer? Do you think that you would find a new vibrancy for your mission as you prayed this prayer like Jesus did? Do you think that you would find unity with Christ, relationship with him, closeness with him, a miracle transformation with him if you prayed this prayer? I think that we would. I do think that we would. But one of my primary worries as a pastor is that we'll do something like today, that we'll look at Jesus' prayer life, we'll understand the six categories, you'll even maybe like write it in your element church notebook, and then we're going to go forward and we're going to leave it on the shelf to break glass in case of emergency, and that we're not going to actually activate a rhythm of prayer in our life. We're going to learn so much about prayer and never actually pray. We're going to leave prayer for church time and not for the rhythm of our life. I worry like we're going to be like I was with Grandma watching Jeopardy, that it's just going to be something in our minds and not something that dips down into our heart or into our spirit or into our life. That's what I worry about as a pastor. And so I want to spend some time here today closing our service praying just like this so that we can kind of catch a spark or a rhythm and be bold and be encouraged to step into a prayer life with him. I don't want to just teach you about prayer. I want to be actually a people of prayer. So I'm invited Tara to come up and to close us in prayer. But as she comes, I'd like to just reread John 17, 20 and following and maybe make this an echo of Element Church's prayer to the Father, one with another. To pray like Jesus does when he says it this way. I am praying not only for these disciples, but for all of you who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one just as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them just as much as you love me. Psalm 5.3 says, In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I present my requests before you, and I wait expectantly. That's the heart of prayer, you guys. That's what the Father wants us to know, that it is a conversation, that it is a relationship, that he simply wants to hear your voice, that it is a daily rhythm of waking up and spending time with him, that he is the first thing on your mind 
the last thing on your lips before you go to sleep. If this whole series feels intimidating or overwhelming, if you're feeling disqualified or inept in any way, this is for you. The Father loves you. He is for you. He intercedes for you. The Word says that Jesus still prays for you, that He's seated at the right hand of the Father, that the work is finished, that He's accomplished everything needed to give you life and wholeness and healing and a relationship with him. The only thing he wants from you is to hear your voice. And there are many ways to do that. There's the Lord's prayer. You can pray through the Psalms. There are prayers of lament, of rejoicing. But if you don't know how, then be honest. We're here for you. Pastor Buzz and I are here for you. We want to connect with you. We want to support you. We want to pray with you. We want to teach you how to move forward in your prayer life. And if you feel like, you know what? I'm I'm past that introductory level. Then it's time to level up. It's time to grow in your commitment to prayer, in your sacrifice for prayer. So wherever you are at this morning, wherever this finds you, let the Holy Spirit minister to you. Let him bring conviction. Let him bring encouragement. Be reminded that he is your father. A father simply wants to hear the voice of his children. He loves it. He loves the long, rambly stories. He loves hearing your worries. He loves hearing what you're concerned about, how you are praying for other people. He wants to hear it all. He just wants to meet with you. Amen. Let's go to him. Father, I just submit this community to you. Teach us. Teach us your ways, Jesus. You are Lord over it all. You give us the wisdom and the discernment and the commitment to do what is right. For anyone who is sitting here feeling disqualified, hiding secret sin, afraid to come back to you, afraid that you don't want to meet with them, Would you cancel that feeling? Would you cancel the assignment of the enemy over their lives that is precluding them from waking up daily and crying out, crying out with joy, with thanksgiving, with praise, with lament, with loss, with regret? Father, be with each one. Let them know that you are their savior. You are their protector. You are their righteous father, the one that loves them intimately, that knows their every thought. Would you make us a people of prayer? Would you motivate us, grow us in our disciplines, Lord? Give us conviction. Help us to lead. Help us to sacrifice. Help us to lay those that you put on our hearts before you every day in simple language. We don't need to be eloquent. We don't need to be fancy. You said, I simply want to hear your voice. And Father, we will commit to doing that. Not just in this prayer series, as Pastor Buzz, as he mentioned, but always that we would live lives committed to prayer, committed to your kingdom, committed to relationship with you, Jesus. We love you so much. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you guys so much for coming out, for joining us every week. Come back week after week. We're going to grow in our discipline for prayer. We're going to grow in our relationship. And again, don't hesitate. Reach out to one of us. Reach out to the staff, to a small group leader, whoever it is that's in your life. Um, and just say, I need help. I need help on this journey. We are for you, and we're so excited that you're here. God bless, and we'll see you next week. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast or follow us on social media. To learn more about our gathering times in Cheyenne, Wyoming, or to take your next step, visit our website, elementchurch.life. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next week right here on the Element Church Podcast.